The new elected school board law imposes a moratorium on school closures until the new board is seated. And in the dining, drinking, and gambling realms, the Cubs unveil plans for a Wrigley Field sportsbook, and with the Delta variant now prompting talk of new restrictions, restaurant owners worry more losses could be ahead. They sort of were just feeling like they were getting out of the weeds. Um, Now they're having to look at the city's dashboards again, start to watch the case counts going up, and they're getting kind of panicky. Cranes reporters Ali Marathi and Danny Ecker join me to talk about those stories and more. Watching how many companies are tapping the brakes on returning to offices. I mean, this is really just in the last couple of weeks now, people are looking at this Delta variant spread and saying, okay, are we sure about Labor Day? I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Monday, August 9th. In these uncertain times, it's important to have people you trust by your side. When 11,000 local business owners needed a Paycheck Protection Program loan, they turned to their Wintrust banker to secure funding because that's a relationship they can count on. Businesses are navigating some of the biggest challenges they will ever face. Wintrust is here to answer their calls. They'll answer yours, too. Start the conversation at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. I'm joined by Cranes reporters Danny Ecker and Allie Moradi here to talk about some big stories of the week. Allie, let's start with you. You've been writing a lot about restaurants and all the struggles that they've been going through during the pandemic with the Delta variant now kind of prompting some talk about new restrictions potentially coming to restaurants. What are you hearing from restaurant operators right now? So it's interesting. A couple of weeks ago, when a lot of talk started circulating about the increase in case counts, you saw some restaurants coming out and saying that they're going to basically reinstitute mask mandates for customers when they're not eating, essentially. So um, a lot of them that I talked to, they haven't made changes yet. Actually, they've said, you know, we have never stopped requiring masks among our staff, or we've never stopped taking temperatures at the door, that sort of thing. Some are actually requiring proof of vaccine before they enter. A metropolitan Brewery is one of them. Um, and then others, you know, they've required their staff to get vaccinated. So the biggest kind of feeling is this kind of dark deja vu, though, among these restaurant operators, because now they're all of a sudden, they sort of were just feeling like they were getting out of the weeds. Um, now they're having to look at the city's dashboards again, start to watch the case counts going up, and they're getting kind of panicky because we're approaching the fourth quarter, which is typically you know the most lucrative time for restaurants with holiday spending and everything going on. And a lot of them, I think, were hoping to recoup some of their losses in the fourth quarter because they still haven't done that yet. You know, it's been busy at restaurants. Patios have been full. Reservations have been hard to come by, but they still have, you know, months and months of lost revenue to make up for. So some of them are getting really worried right now. And you talked with Sam Toy of the Illinois Restaurant Association. And what's what's his feeling right now as he's talking to, you know, his constituents? He says that he expects to see more restaurants and eating and drinking establishments start to check for vaccine proof. We saw last week New York City requiring proof of vaccine for any indoor activities such as dining, gyms, etc. The city of Chicago says that they're not going to do that, you know, for a myriad of reasons, but restaurants here are kind of taking it into their own hands. So he says there will be more of that, but he's still pushing very, very hard for people to get vaccinated. And you're seeing a lot of restaurant operators do that as well. It's hard for them, you know, because it's a weird kind of burden that is put on them as business operators. How do you check for that? How do you, um, you know, consider privacy 
all that sort of conversation is coming into play when restaurants are deciding if they want to do that. The other thing that Sam Toya is really pushing for is more relief for restaurants, because like I said, they are still struggling. There's this restaurant revitalization fund that came down from the federal government that ran out and they're hoping to get more money to that. So there's still a lot of work to be done as far as restaurant recovery goes. And, um, you know, there's just a lot of people getting really worried about what these rising case counts might mean. Yeah. And what what is the closure rate right now? What is that looking like? So it's interesting. This is something that I have been kind of watching as we you know go through the pandemic. Um, up until now, I haven't really seen a super comprehensive, basically, count of the carnage. Um, the Illinois Restaurant Association had been predicting that about 20% of the state's more than 25,000 eating and drinking establishments would close. So I got um, some data from this company called Data Central, and they said that um, nearly 19% of Chicago's restaurants that were open in March 2020 have closed. And that's more than double what the rate was in the 16 months leading up to the pandemic. In the suburbs, it's closer to about 12%, which is lower. But that's still double what they saw, you know, also in the 16 months leading up to the pandemic. And uh, part of the discrepancy there is just because um, if you think about restaurants in the city of Chicago, pretty dependent on tourism, pretty dependent on, you know, workers coming down to the loop, that sort of thing. Whereas the suburbs, you know, a lot of people are have been the whole pandemic staying at home, eating close to home out in the suburbs, that sort of thing. So it's really interesting to finally see some of those numbers and kind of the timing is just, like I said, scary for a lot of these operators because they a lot of folks told me that they think that number is going to keep going up. Especially if the fourth quarter is so critical for restaurants. You know, I think that'll be uh, something we check back on for sure. So Danny, let me go to you. I love it when the sports beat and the commercial real estate beat intersect, and that is what has happened for you. So the Cubs have unveiled plans for a sports book at Wrigley Field. Tell me about this. Right. So this was something that the team had sort of lifted the veil on a little bit back in the fall because they announced a big sponsorship deal with DraftKings. And they said, we're going to launch a sports book at Wrigley Field. It's going to be really big. It's going to be a flagship location. They just didn't have details last fall. Now what has happened is the team has gone before the Commission on Chicago Landmarks to get its sign off. Obviously, Wrigley is a landmark. And so when they're going to make a change, like adding a two-story structure at the southeast corner of the stadium, uh, they need um, the city to sign off on that. This building itself actually was contemplated years back. We're talking, I guess, what, eight, nine years now, eight eight years or so, I guess, when, when the, the Cubs got the city's approval for the renovation and redevelopment of Wrigley Field and its surroundings. It was going to be a big bar or restaurant or some combination of the two then, and obviously lots changed in the world of sports gambling now, and they've said, okay, well, we're going to still build that, but it's going to be a, a, a primarily a gambling facility. So this will be, you know, one of the first betting operations at a major U.S. pro sports venue, and 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 probably one of of many that will probably be coming over time. I mean, this is something that that you know, as sports betting continues to kind of sweep across the country, uh, we're going to see more teams say, okay, well, people are betting on our games. Let's be part of this. You know, let's find a way to make money from it. So the Cubs uh, are are looking for the city approval. And then now there, there's still some other hurdles to clear, uh, probably higher hurdles, actually, one of which is the city still needs to pass an ordinance that would allow the team to operate its own sports book. Um, and there was an ordinance just introduced last month by Alderman Burnett uh, that would allow that. 
and it's got a little bit of pushback and potentially some controversy around it. So that's not a guarantee either. So it's still unclear exactly when this would all come together. What's the pushback about? So you have to keep in mind that obviously this was part of the broader statewide expansion of gambling that was passed last year. And we've got, you know, this sense of, of what is this going to do? You know, there's also in the backdrop, a, a Chicago casino uh, could be coming into the city and, and uh, could potentially be a very important source of revenue for the city moving forward. Some aldermen might be saying, well, well, wait a minute. So if we're going to have these teams open sports books and people are going to bet there, well, wait a minute, why aren't we cannibalizing our casino that we're trying to get going here? So there's some concern there. And I think there's it's a tricky thing to be able to try to separate those two. And there, obviously there's some pushback and lobbying from other you know gambling stakeholders locally who said, hey, we don't want the extra competition from the teams. We don't want people to be able to go to show up to Wrigley or to the United Center when, you know, if and when they uh, propose something like this to bet, they want them at casinos and they want them at their other locations. So whenever it comes to gambling in Illinois, there's all kinds of politics involved and lobbying and probably some behind the scenes pushing around. And then that's no different here. But the Cubs are, you know, would be the first in the city. And again, one of the first in the country to say, hey, we were going to have a betting operation in our stadium. This is going to be part of the stadium experience. And so... We talked kind of a bit about what that would mean citywide, potentially, but what about for the Cubs? I mean, just going to a game suddenly becomes a very different experience if a sports book is part of it. Yeah, I mean, as polarizing as the gambling part about it is, I mean, this, that's the, the fan experience part. There's there's people on both sides of that. You know, you talk to some people who say, this is great. This is exactly, this is so delayed. This is something that should be part of every major stadium. This has been this, the case for a long time in Europe. Um, where you go and there's betting windows at, at games. And people would say, look, it doesn't impact. People still like going to games there. But there are some people who would just say, well, it's a different experience. You know, do we want our, you know, is this, is this meant to be more of a family-friendly type of experience? And you bring kids and it's more about the experience of going to a game or do they want betting to be a bigger part of it? I think those two things can coexist. You know, this is a building that will, uh, you know, obviously be attached to the stadium, but I think it also will probably function you know, really, you could go to a game and not even know it's there or really, uh, you know, go in a different entrance and have no sense of it. But I think gambling is just going to be a much bigger part of the game day experience um, at Wrigley Field. And um, there are some people who don't want that. And then on top of all of that, you have Cubs fans, uh, you know, the timing of this, the fact that this these that they're going before landmarks. And I mean, you have Cubs fans who are saying, wait a minute, we just traded away our best players because we didn't have the money to sign them. And uh, they they don't like to see spending uh, on on revenue generating things when they aren't seeing spending on you know core players that have such a important role in uh, with the team and I think you know there's there's a there's there's a, a caveat to that I think for fans which is that this is in theory supposed to be a money money making opportunity for the owners which again in theory could then be put back onto the field but. You know, I, I think it's very understandable frustration right now if you're a Cubs fan saying, look, we're not a small market team. You know, we're not a team that just has to, you know, take everything down and rebuild and start from scratch again. We're, we're a team in a big market that we just, you know, uh, th- this whole renovation of Wrigley Field was meant to add more revenue to the team. And that's what we've done. Now, let's see you guys spending that money on keeping the players that we love, you know, as opposed to having to let them go and then start over. But 
you know, then again, the COVID factors in play and, and uh, of what's happened to finances in baseball. And we could be heading into a strike potentially after this season. So uh, there's all kinds of factors in play here beyond uh, that, that all kind of tie into this, this little two story structure. Yeah, that's certainly the case. And now assuming everything goes according to plan, right? The, the Illinois gaming board license, the ordinance, all of that passes. What kind of timeline would we be looking at? So it would take about a year, according to the team, to build this. Um, They said, the team said last fall they were aiming to have it open by the end of 2022. Um, I suppose that's conceivable, but, you know, there always tend to be, especially with the Cubs and the city, always some extra delays built in. So I guess if I had to bet on it, uh, no pun intended now, I'd say that doesn't happen. I'd say it's later than that. They also have to go through the National Park Service because, as you may recall, last fall, Wrigley Field was finally... After all this re- restoration project, it was designated a National Historic Landmark, which uh, makes the Ricketts family uh, eligible for some $75 million in, in uh, federal tax credits for restoring a, a landmark like this. And this is part of the challenge now with Wrigley Field. Whenever there's going to be, what, you know, without, that's what comes with being a landmark like that at a federal level. Whenever there's going to be a change, you have to get the National Park Service to sign off too. It's not just, hey, run to City Hall, get some aldermen to, to support you. It's, it's bigger than that. Okay, so... Dining, drinking, and gambling, those are certainly two big things on both your beats. Um, what other things are you looking at on your beats in the week ahead? Allie, let's start with you. Yeah, um, I've got a story coming up about a restaurant that is opening in uh, the Fulton Market District over there, West Loop area. And that's something that experts continue to point out to me as well. A lot of these restaurants that close will be replaced by new restaurants because they're already set up to hold them. Um, So that's something I'm keeping an eye on and writing about um, the occasional opening here and there, though I think it's important to say that there are still too many for me to write about. Um, So I'm having to kind of pick and choose those. So that's one thing. Um, I'm going to be watching uh, Portillo's, um, which plans to IPO. They haven't given a date yet, but uh, we talked about that earlier last week, Amy and I did. So that's something I'm going to be keeping an eye on. And um, yeah, I think we're just going to keep watching what happens with restrictions and case counts and how that plays in with everything. Indeed. Danny, what about you? What's coming up in the week ahead? Watching how many companies are tapping the brakes on returning to offices. I mean, this is really just in the last couple of weeks now, people are looking at this Delta variant spread and saying, okay, are we sure about Labor Day? And that's the time we're all going to be coming back. I mean, certainly there are plenty of companies that have said, uh, you know, that have been in, in back in offices for a while and they've been just doing it with, you know, a, a system of mask wearing or maybe some non-mask wearing and having, having employees vaccinated. And so I think the return to office and what the Delta variant is going to do to, to push that back is going to be interesting. Does that, you know, also stall some leasing activity? Because we we're starting to just see that pick up. And then how many more companies are we going to see step up and say, we are requiring you as a condition of employment to be vaccinated? Yeah, I thought it was interesting to see that announcement from Tyson, such a big, big company. Yeah, I was just going to say that they've got, I think, 120,000 employees, but 1,100 of which are in the Chicago area. So huge. Yeah, that's that's a big one. Of course, we saw, you know, how COVID impacted the meatpacking industry, of course, earlier um, earlier in the pandemic cycle. All right, let's move to stories that are not on your beat, but that caught your eye over the last week or so. What you got? It was, you know, the Weber Grill IPO. Oh, I have that on my list too. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, it was, I don't know. It's just interesting. I think there, it was, it kind of fizzled, obviously. It was, yeah. you know, just came up way short of what they, what they raised. And the, I, it just struck me as like, maybe people think that, you know, this amazing run of 
people spending furiously on home improvements and spending things that for the home like grills uh, is short lived. You know, it's almost like this was a, I don't know, maybe they maybe just set the bar too high and, and it actually was a successful IPO if you look at it from a different way. But these other two are just kind of more from the, the goofy department because that's the way I just tend to take these conversations. Um, the story about this sculpture of a sumo wrestler scaring horses. <laughs> yes. um, I have not seen this. <laughs> it's funny. So in the Olympics, if you've been watching the equestrian uh as closely as I have because I have a fantasy Olympics team and I watch this stuff. Uh, there's a sculpture on the course of this, you know, hor- basically this horse is jumping over these, um, these barriers. And there's a sculpture of a big sumo wrestler that looks very realistic. And a lot of these equestrian riders were saying they, it is scaring the horses. Like they're, they're all getting spooked because when they turn a certain corner, they all see this very lifelike sumo wrestler and they're all kind of, you know, Horses are, are, are freaking out over this. And um, I just, that was one of those headlines where I saw it and I go, that's, you always kind of want to be able to get to write a story with a headline, you know, about sumo wrestlers scaring horses. Um, <laughs> right. And uh, and then the last one I, I uh, enjoyed uh, was just, just because I've followed this fairly closely with the, the who's going to be the new Jeopardy host. Yes. Um, the, the chatter around uh, Mike Richards. Yeah. Who was the first guest host uh, when they restarted these things um, to replace Alex Trebek. And he was an executive producer of the show. Uh, he was kind of the guy who filled in while they were waiting for celebrities to come in and do this parade of, of guest hosting. And um, he's had quite a bit of experience in uh, with, with game shows and even a bit of hosting. But, um, you know, it's just kind of funny because we were. <laughs> I saw someone commented on one of the stories that was covering it saying, you know, this is like the end of, of Willy Wonka and Willy Wonka just awards the chocolate factory to himself, you know, <laughs> um, where, where everyone was, you know, we went through this whole, okay, who's it going to be? Who do we like? Is it going to be Ken Jennings? Is it going to be someone else? And, and now it's one of the executive producers. He said, ah, okay, I'm just going to do it. And uh, I, I, it hasn't been finalized, it sounds like, but um, I, I don't know. I think it's interesting because this guy is almost like a uh, you know, the, almost like the dark horse here and, and, and maybe he'll be great, you know, uh, but it's just been funny to watch you know, who everyone debating about which of these celebrities are going to step in. And nah, it was just the executive producer the whole time. I know. Yeah. I, I was uh, looking at that play out on Twitter and everybody was either, you know, team LeVar Burton or team Mayan Bialik and people were just mad about it and fighting. It was very, I was like, oh no, what's happening? Yeah. But yeah, no, I saw that too. I thought that was interesting. Allie, what about you? First of all, I thought that whole saga was so interesting, Danny, and I hadn't seen the latest development, but at one point I saw a headline about like how the different hosts were basically screwing up the contestants because the cadence was off, like the button pressing and the, the way they asked the questions and they, it was like throwing them all off. And I never would have thought that, but I guess I would be a terrible game show contestant. Um, <laughs> for my three, um, obviously all the Olympic stuff, I'm just trying to be like, but I have not been getting up early to watch it by any means, but tuning into the primetime coverage and it's just always so fascinating. Um, the other ones are kind of bonkers. And uh, these are two New York Times stories that caught my eye, but there was this big deep dive into these mountains in uh, Southern Australia that basically hikers have been going missing in for years. So they kind of, there was a, a these two hikers in their seventies that were back or they were camping and they went missing and 
um, just recently. So it kind of triggered the story and uh, no one can explain like why all these people disappear or where they go. And it's apparently just very rugged, very beautiful, but very unpredictable. It can go from like sunny to completely snowy, even in the summer there and everything. Um, and I was just sort of reading through the story and there's all these crazy twists and turns, like people that disappear. There's always like one guy that disappeared was like the head of a prison. So did something go on there? Like one guy that vanished, they like found this giant marijuana farm when they were looking for him. So did something go on there? Or is it like, I don't know, something supernatural. So that's super interesting. The other one, um, apparently there was this Japan gave Mike Pompeo a, uh, bottle of whiskey that was valued at five thousand eight hundred dollars in 2019 and it has gone missing I saw this. <laughs> um, so i don't know that caught my attention obviously it's probably with the hikers in australia it's with the hikers <laughs> they took it they're yes. <laughs> they ran away and they went to the guy's weed farm and they're having a fine time <laughs> i saw that too i was like how do you misplace a bottle of liquor, much less one that's over five grand? <laughs> How do you do that? Apparently, the story said that if it's over a certain amount, um, then the person has to buy it if they want it. It's so like if Mike Pompeo wanted that, he would have had to pay $5,800 to get it. Um, and he was like, I have no idea what that. his lawyer was like. I don't ever remember getting a bottle of whiskey. I don't know where it's at. Well, the um, the one that I would add to that, because you because the Weber Grill one was on mine um, for sure. Um, what I would add is um, Catherine Davis wrote a really interesting piece about um, COVID burnout and what companies are trying to do, what they're looking at, some options um, to try to combat that, including like a four day work week. The idea of like a meeting free day or a meeting free afternoon, I thought was really interesting. I had a good chat with her about that, and then also I am. I, in an earlier episode, I talked with Dennis Rodkin about this house that this mid-century architect built as a model home in 1954. And we have all these stories of Twitter being terrible, but in fact, he tweeted about this house and someone on Twitter said, I know about that. Here's an ad from the Tribune archives that I have where this guy had advert, this architect had advertised about this house. And then as a, as a, through the course of reporting the story, he was in touch with the architect's son. The architect has since passed. And the son said, I know he had a model home somewhere in Lincolnwood, but I never saw it. And so he was able to tell him where to find his dad's last work. And I was like, what a nice little warm, fuzzy story as a result of, of, you know, the Tribune archives and being on Twitter and all that. I thought that was a very cool one. Well, thank you both. Appreciate you for joining me today. And we will talk again soon. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Amy. Bye. Coming up, Chicago-based United Airlines will require vaccines for all its U.S. workers. We'll talk about that and more right after this. When change is constant, stability matters. That's the promise of forever ownership. Irvine Company's unwavering commitment to providing dynamic workplace communities to meet your evolving business needs. From Class A-plus trophy buildings with marquee addresses to energizing amenities, Irvine Company's dedication to your success lasts a lifetime, now and forever. Start exploring at irvinecompanyoffice.com gist. A little-noticed provision in the new elected school board law for Chicago Public Schools prohibits school closings until January of 2025, when the first elected members are seated. That, even as falling enrollment, leaves more desks empty. A.D. Quigg is reporting the story in detail for Cranes. 
Governor J.B. Pritzker signed a bill into law last month that will fundamentally transform the Chicago Board of Education in the coming years. But one short provision in the bill has a potentially big impact on CPS operations. From June of 2022 until January of 2025, the board is officially barred from closing, consolidating, or phasing out any schools. It's a victory for the Chicago Teachers Union and organizers. Ever since Mayor Rahm Emanuel closed 50 schools in 2013, they've been pushing for an end to closures. But it presents a challenge for the district, where the number of underutilized school buildings outnumber efficient or overcrowded ones, where enrollment has dropped by 15% over the last decade, and where fiscal pressures will mount once federal COVID relief runs out. Cutting operation costs, which can make up 20% of school budgets, is one way to keep the books balanced. But there's a cost to closing schools, too. Disruption in the local community, impacts on student grades and safety, and the difficulty of selling old buildings. Some 145 schools are below 50% capacity and 24 are below 25% capacity. There's only one set of schools in North Lawndale having public discussions about a possible consolidation. Local Alderman Michael Scott Jr. says those discussions are continuing. Boeing is spinning off its Horizon X Ventures arm along with a stake in about 40 companies as the plane maker shrinks its infrastructure. The Chicago-based company dissolved an internal investing unit known as Next last fall as it pulled back on spending and retreated from several ambitious initiatives launched a few years prior before the 737 MAX grounding and the pandemic cost the company more than $30 billion in cash. The company formed Horizon X in 2017 to invest in early-stage companies or those with transformational aerospace tech. The portfolio holdings include Virgin Galactic, Sir Richard Branson's space company. The plane maker intends to continue to selectively invest in companies that fit with its strategic goals. Boeing recently formed a partnership to bring large-scale sustainable aviation fuel to the U.S., and it intends to hang on to two high-profile startups funded by the former VC arm, including WISC, the urban mobility venture it founded with Larry Page-backed Kitty Hawk Corporation and SkyGrid, a venture with Spark Cognition aimed at helping managing the coming wave of pilotless vehicles. Moline-based John Deere, the world's biggest tractor maker, will acquire autonomous driving technology startup Bear Flag Robotics for $250 million, a bet that farming will keep becoming more automated, which is thought to be key to solving farm labor shortages, which have long been an issue in the sector. Growers are struggling to get enough workers to bring crops from fields at a time when global hunger is also on the rise. Bear Flag CEO said in a statement, quote, one of the biggest challenges farmers face today is the availability of skilled labor to execute time sensitive operations that impact farming outcomes. The statement continued, autonomy offers a safe and productive alternative to address that challenge head on. Deere has been working with Bear Flag since 2019 as part of a company program to work with startups that could add value for Deere customers, that according to the company. United Airlines is requiring all of its workers in the U.S. to get vaccinated against COVID-19, becoming the first major U.S. airline to mandate the shots. Chicago-based United, like several other companies, says that it will allow some exceptions for religious and medical reasons, but the company says that those who don't get vaccinated will lose their jobs. United's policy impacts about 67,000 workers in the U.S. who must provide proof of vaccination within five weeks of the FDA fully approving the vaccine or five weeks after 
after September 20th, whichever comes first, the company said. Companies are expecting that the FDA will soon issue full approval for one or more of the COVID-19 vaccines, which got emergency use authorization because of the pandemic. The conditional approval has been cited by many unvaccinated people as the reason why they haven't yet received the vaccine. United is among a growing number of employers who are mandating that workers be vaccinated, including Tyson Foods. United CEO Scott Kirby was an early champion of requiring employees to be vaccinated, but he hadn't required vaccinations until now. Among the challenges were union contracts and availability of the vaccine. American Airlines, which has a major hub in Chicago, will not require employees to get vaccinated, CEO Doug Parker previously told The New York Times. And that's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Our continuous news feed lives at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks to both of my guests today, Crane's reporters Danny Ecker and Ali Marotti. Be sure to subscribe to these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your audio on demand. And be sure to find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.